0: Hello, welcome to the Newstack Makers, a podcast where we talk about at-scale application development, deployment, and management.
1: The Mirantis mission is to help ship code faster. Mirantis offers enterprises unprecedented speed to ship code faster across public and private clouds by reducing cloud complexity with real choice, simplicity, and security. Mirantis and the Newstack are under common control.
0: Why don't we just get started right away? I'd like to introduce the panelists first, and we'll get into the topic of discussion, which is focusing on the cloud-native data center as a future of modern infrastructure. One of the developments that we've seen, especially I think over the past 18 months, is how the data center is changing and how it's going to affect so much as we start to think about edge architectures or augmented reality or Anything you can think of, and really what we have seen over the past 10, 15 years is the work done by companies like Twitter, who built open source architectures inside of their operations, and then started to use cloud services to extend themselves. So, Twitter, for instance, you know, a few years ago, talked about how they were using Google Cold Storage and using Google Cloud for their Hadoop deployments. And so that really points to where we always see that those scale-out companies lead the way. And when they lead the way, they then have an effect on companies all over the world who are building out their own infrastructure. So what we're seeing is really the real fast emergence of open source, the number of components in open source the number of open source components is increasing inside services and applications, and it's leading to a lot of change. One of the ways I think about it is like there's just a lot of free stuff in those data centers and you need to support that free stuff so people can get the best experience possible. So let me start introducing everyone. Mark Hinkle, co-founder and CEO of TriggerMesh. Sean O'Meara, field CTO at Mirantis. Good morning. Jeremy Tanner, developer relations at Equinix. Good morning. Hi, Jeremy. And Sophia Vargas, Research Analyst, Open Source Program offices at Google. Good morning. Great to have you here. I'm going to ask everyone a few questions before we get started. One of the things I'm really curious about is what's different in the data center now compared to five years ago in the days before the pandemic started? And since the pandemic started, what has been some of the changes you've seen and where do you see kind of things going? So I'd love to start off with Sean.
2: Great. So I think the biggest impact the pandemic has made to the way we look at the data center has been pre-pandemic, everyone was starting to move to public cloud. Everyone was thinking that the public cloud is the way forward. Most companies have some sort of public cloud strategy. That was starting to accelerate. What we've seen is more and more companies are starting to look at that strategy and wondering if it is the right way to go as public cloud is the only option. And we're seeing more companies coming to talk to us as an example about how do we balance out our usage of our on-premise infrastructure, and then still consume a public cloud when we need to, but people are trying to move back on-prem, but changing the way they view the data center. So instead of the data center being their physical box that they keep everything in, they're seeing the data center as a king off point for their workloads.
0: So does this make sense to you, or do you have a different perspective on it?
1: It does make sense to me. And color my background here with, I covered the data center market for a long time, but then the last few years have been moving into more of an internal operational role around open source. A little bit more removed from the data center, but I think this period... We're kind of obsessed with technology and the progression of it. And in the last year, we're now thinking more about how we work together as people. Uh, I was just sort of thinking that on stage at KubeCon. I've been going to KubeCon since 2014. And I remember the first time I went, it was all about automation and abstraction and better utilizing infrastructure through composable tools and ways that you can assemble what you need. And none of those themes have really gone away. We've just seen it sort of increase with various different types of distributed architectures and sort of seeing that continued progression. But so many of the keynotes were realizing or recognizing the importance of working together and facilitating collaborative relationships in ways that, I don't want to say that we lost sight of it, but being apart from each other kind of started to tear on some of those elements and really kind of brought back the importance of people in the system, people as part of the system. So maybe not exactly the tech view, but one of the things that I think has caused us to reevaluate how we work together as we build new tech.
0: Jeremy, I'm curious, you know, from the Equinix point of view, I know that Packet was acquired by Equinix and they were really focusing on open source projects. How is the Equinix focus on open source projects evolving? And how is that affecting kind of its views of the data center?
3: Over the last five years, there's been huge growth in number of data centers. And so I think going from about 110 to more than 230 data centers for us. And in addition to building and acquiring new data centers, acquiring companies like Packet, which is now Equinix Metal, goes right into that automation theme of before where things were bringing up infrastructure with tickets or emails or people touching the machines. Packet was adding an API to that bare metal so you could get it networked, get a operating system onto the machine. That's actually in the t-shirt today. The Tinkerbell project came from Packet and Equinix Metal was donated to the CNCF last year and is a solid way to uh, get an operating system onto your bare metal. And so more and more trying to let folks use the projects that we develop under the care of the CNCF, heavily dedicated to open source, have done a million-dollar contribution to the cloud-native infrastructure lab. So for CNCF projects or just open-source developers, they're able to see how their projects run on bare metal, whether that be uh, ARM or x86 or whatever new is coming.
0: Mark, so how has it changed for you? You were talking the other day about things you're seeing in 2006, 2007, and the ecosystem now is so much bigger now. Does that serve as a Factor and how data centers are evolving. Yeah, it really must, and I'm more curious how and like how that affects your approach. Yeah, I
4: think a lot of times we used to say we build data centers. Now we integrate infrastructure. So we have Kubernetes running on bare metal at Equinix. We have cloud services from Google. We've got OpenStack cloud from the legacy years. We have more infrastructure than ever before, and we're much more API driven infrastructure than we were 25 years ago when I started this and saw a lot more servers. Now we look at interfaces and that makes it interesting because we're integrating and composing infrastructure, not building it in
2: the same way.
0: Anyone want to follow up on that thought?
2: I'll follow up on that thought, but I'd like to touch on what Sphere mentioned. When we start talking about these technologies that we're working with today and this <laughs> whole world that we're bringing this mesh of different things together. And Mark and I were talking earlier about what trigger mesh is doing. Ultimately, all of this technology is about enabling people to create value for their businesses. We want to remove the barriers anytime we're looking at technology. The way that the ecosystem has expanded so enormously is that it's starting to get more and more complicated. And complications create challenges for people. And when things are too complicated, people tend to diverge off and try to do other things. And I think us as an open source industry, companies supporting open source, we need to find ways to make that technology more accessible to the average developer. Developers who need to create value for a business who are not outbuilding the technology that they run business value on top of. And I think that's where it really starts to get interesting work around integrations, work about, I hate to use the term, but democratizing the data center. Make everything more accessible without trying to force people into a single box.
0: I would love to see if there's some questions out there. Do we have any questions that we'd like to start with about open source and how you think about open source? And questions you about, have about data center really as a service or how you think about infrastructure and your views on open source as how they integrate. Do we have a question? Yeah. Why are organizations reconsidering, I guess, more of a hybrid approach? Is it a cost thing? And also seems like you need a pretty considerable
4: skill set to set up an internal cloud or a cloud on a fair metal service. What should
2: organizations think about when considering such a hybrid approach? Lots of questions there. Go
1: I was going to say, isn't it always about cost? <laughs> I feel like I started my career building models for understanding data center economics, especially early on in the cloud transition. I went from talking about giant refrigerated buildings to, okay, how much does it actually cost to assemble these components, put all the infrastructure in it, and then how do I compare that cost model to a completely different kind of cost model? And that was a lot of the early cloud adoption was just understanding the change in economics. So there was always a cost element to paying for millions of dollars of infrastructure, whether or not you're dealing with the physical space or not. So I think there's always going to be a cost component. I mean, I think there's been statements that we're finally moving away from IT as a cost center approach to being a strategic element of the business now that so many things have transitioned to digital services. But it's always going to be on the balance sheet. I mean, we have to spend money to make money in in these contexts. So I think it's always going to be a component For me, in terms of hybrid being the buzzword here, but I really see it's just an assembly of a lot of different parts. I really liked what Sean was saying in terms of really seeing all the various components now where we have more options than we ever did. And this additional software that's coming in and adding abstraction on our infrastructure is just giving us all these additional tools that we might have had before, but now we have at our fingertips we can interact with. So it is creating an incredible amount of complexity and additional that brings in more choice and control, depending on how much you want to use it. But then it becomes a cost component. How much are you spending on integration and retraining and reskilling, even if you're not actually buying these things as a service? So I'm going to make that argument here.
2: (laughs) I would agree with that, but I'd add on that one of the big factors you want to take into account is risk management. If we're driving as to why hybrid, cost, of course, is the base for everything we do. We think about cost every day. But what else are companies are driving decisions? And, and risk management is one of those big ones. If I'm stuck using only one provider, I'm at risk. That's core to that. And that's what's driving a lot of the hybrid cloud decisions we're seeing. It's, it's how do I spread my risk on top of the costs and Sometimes cloud isn't the cheapest way to go. Sometimes doing it differently using an edge stack is what I need to do because I need to move closer to my users. And that's why we're seeing a lot of driving around the hybrid models.
3: Yeah, I think flexibility is
2: right next to cost there, as oftentimes you're looking
3: at cost as how much is it going to cost as opposed to how long do I need to pay? And this being talking data center as a service and offering bare metal as a service, instead of it being a capex cost where it's going to be your friend and pet for five years or 15 years or however long, whether that be a facility or a machine. Being able to have as much of it as you'd like for an hour or so is going to help keep costs down if you can buy a little instead of buy it forever. Yeah, I'd just add that I think the change in the way
4: that people consume IT used to be end-to-end solutions from the big vendors. And now, if you'll pardon the pun, the new stack is getting the best to breed and combining it into the thing that best fits your needs. That's really the the change that I see.
0: Great. We have a question here. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering, because uh, what you said is very true about you know, trying to remove some of the complexity. I work for a service provider, and what we're finding is if you remove complexity, then you lose flexibility. And then added on to that, with all the new security problems and issues that comes, how can something be made simpler, especially dealing with that added problem of all the security threats?
2: I'd offer a turn question to that one. Do we need that level of flexibility at every stage of the stack? is the question I often ask. We talk about, oh, we want all this flexibility. We've got all this choice, and that's wonderful. Let's just use Kubernetes as an example and networking. We've got 20 different projects to choose from a networking option, you know, four different projects for ingress. But do we need all four projects? And isn't an opinionated stack for the majority, for the 80% of workloads, actually not just all we need? Because we can then secure that stack. We can have somebody else take ownership of delivering that opinionated stack, there's always going to be the 20%. There's always going to be that 20% of super smart people who need to do something special. But for the vast majority of things, do we really need to bring in that complexity?
0: Anyone else want to reply?
2: I'd just add to what Sean said
4: is that when they started championing cloud, they talked a lot about it being utility computing. And the idea there is that there's utility in it versus performance or flexibility or those other things. I think some people underestimate having something that is utility, that has good value, delivers 90% of what you would want and 100% of what you need.
0: Sophia, doesn't it come back to the network all the time and how strong is your network? And that should not change, right? What are the things that should not change in a data center that are always consistent, that are just required, that you would want to be opinionated about?
1: I wasn't necessarily thinking about it in terms of change, but terms of change in what we're able to have access to. So this idea that now that we have so many choices, we're essentially have access to all of the, the bleeding edge of ideas of new tooling. And part of this sort of discussion of choosing an opinion data stack or choosing something that you know is a vetted solution that ties these things together is something that you can trust someone else to support for you versus again, the flexibility versus the vetted approach argument. But I think the real difference here is that we have access to it, where when things were all dependent on proprietary tooling and the release cycle of those tools, then we got the latest and greatest when they became released as a product that we could buy and then trust versus, hey, we're all trying new things. Here are the ideas that we have. You can either choose to play around with them now or you can wait until the dust settles and there's more of an established approach or established winner that more products and services are built around to support. So I, I think that it's more we're just exposing the innovation out front in a more collaborative an environment to allow people and the end users to start to dictate the future of it. So it's more of this sort of shared innovation collaboration that always happened, but now it's sort of in the forefront and exposed. And I think it's just we're seeing the technology before it lands into the established and vetted space. I don't necessarily think that, again, it's more about the people versus what's happening inside the data center because I think we're always going to have giant refrigerated buildings. And (laughs) I don't think that model is changing for now. I did see some Bloom Energy fuel cells. So I don't know if the alternative energy distribution methods are picking up in other places, but I was excited to see that. Random anecdote,
0: sorry. <laughs> All right, another question. Yes. What's your process to determine
1: if an open source project is mature enough to adopt?
4: I think there's there's a number of factors. I think a lot of open source projects are very transparent in how active they are with issues and builds and frequency. The other thing I think, especially for new open source, is consistency. As Some things sort of peak and have leveled off, but if you're looking at adopting new open source, just the vibrancy around the project, the quality of the contributors in that project, and also something I think for it to really be mature as you look for multiple entities and people. So a good example would be Kubernetes. It was an excellent piece of technology when Google developed it initially. And now we have an industry built around Kubernetes and that kind of support across multiple organizations ensures a long life and stability in the project usually.
0: Jeremy, how do you assess open source projects yourself? What are some of the things you're looking for when you're looking at an open source project? So it's been wonderful to have a place where we're neutral and don't
3: call winners. From the side of managed services, we do none of them. We provide bare metal. And so it's up to the customer to decide when an open source project is ready. Watching the keynote was, I very much enjoyed seeing, I guess, over the last two years going from 44 to about 144 different CNCF projects used to fit on a NASCAR and now not even on the side of however many of them run on a race day. We're committed to being a place where you can run whatever you'd like and listening to developers and hearing what they want. And again, providing infrastructure for open source developers to come and
0: experiment with and make sure that we're a place where they're able to run well. Right. So you've done some research on open source projects. I think you presented here at KubeCon and you also presented up at the Open Source Summit. And you're looking at metrics and how you view metrics. How do you use metrics, for instance, to get an understanding of open source ecosystems and the open source projects in those
1: ecosystems? I mean, I think now we can measure all the things, so we will. We do. But I think that the challenge with open source is that every project is unique. It's made up of a unique group of individuals. And so the goals are really dictated by that group. But if there's a lot more interest now in using metrics to assess things like project health over time, where a lot of them are community-driven metrics, looking at distribution of work and productivity in these sort of open, unincentivized forums. I see a lot of use of metrics as a way to monitor projects and monitor how we should be investing and engaging in projects to keep the ones that are important to us active and thriving. You didn't ask specifically, but in terms of project health metrics, one of the things that keeps bubbling up in our own research is the importance of documentation in terms of keeping people engaged, keeping people able to come into a project and learn how to be productive without ever having to go find someone. And sort of the robustness of documentation being a key assessment criteria for adoption for others, knowing that can they support this on their own or are they going to be dependent on finding the right person, finding the right service to be able to use this piece of technology. So that for me keeps bubbling toward the top of just sort of general project health or project viability type metrics. For me personally, I've been following a lot of just activity distribution in terms of how much work is being done by the core maintainer group. And is that percentage changing over time? Is that maintainer group growing, shrinking? Are they operating the same level of productivity? Or are they starting to show risks of burnout? Which is something I've seen a lot of discussion about here at this event, as well as other open source-based events. But We saw the incredible growth curve of the Kubernetes community, but we haven't seen the same level of growth in the top maintainer positions. And that trajectory is not sustainable when we see the incredible amount of growth happening at the long tail of the project. But in the core center, the same people are now faced with 10x the amount of work.
0: The maintainer issue has become a big one. I know we have a question here. So the one problem that I see with uh, adopting open source in a large enterprise setting is that in many cases it is adopted in a way that there is a potential, a possibility of a bad actor smuggling code into your enterprise environment without it even being noticed. So the question that I have is what could we do all as a senior open source users to improve the security around importing open source code into an enterprise environment? That's a good one. And maybe that's for Miranda. It's like the security involved.
2: Yeah, it's a big topic for us. And it's one we spend a lot of time on. And it comes back to that question actually we had earlier about complexity. We're dealing with so many layers of complexity. And so from a Miranda's point of view, there's several layers to this. Ultimately, I'm going to diverge a little bit here, but open source projects are individuals scratching an itch. Everybody who's contributing to an open-source project is inevitably trying to solve a small problem for themselves. Those of us who are consuming those open-source projects, though, have business problems we want to solve and larger, typically more complex problems. And so to deal with the whole security challenge of how do we vet code, how do we deal with code, often means that we need to buy that as an enterprise through a vendor who can put all those security processes in place, who can do code audits, who can validate the code you're taking, rather than from some arbitrary upstream repository, that you're getting your code from a trusted source, somebody you know is both putting that code through the necessary gates to validate that we aren't any bad actors in it, as well as testing it thoroughly. And so companies like Mirantis, all of the great open source companies, that's part of the promise that we're making when we are billing you for this software. Open source is not free. Somebody has to create that code. Somebody's got to validate that code. And that's one of the ways we're dealing with that whole security change is by making sure that we're able to test and validate everything that we then can provide to our customers as a guarantee.
0: Doesn't this come back to how the project's managed, Mark? The resources that are required to build out projects now are considerable. So you got to think about security. you got to think about what Sophia's talking about and the burnout of the maintainers and the people who are involved in these projects. How do you balance security in that and is this part kind of why we're seeing this in new interest in these tools and these technologies?
4: In general, we take a lot of these things for granted until something breaks. And I think a good example would be like OpenSSL, which was a crisis and sort of open source a few years ago. The maintainers built the security library that virtually all of our financial transactions went over. And it was a guy delivering pizza and another fellow working on their own volition and People just take it for granted until something breaks. And unfortunately, I don't have a good answer for what we do proactively other than we rely on a system of vendors and trade organizations like the CNCF and others to help protect and uh, maintain the commons and get the resources to those open source volunteers to make sure it continues to be a viable way to deliver technology.
0: I'd love to get Jeremy and Sophia's thoughts on this because I know both of you have your own perspectives. Jeremy? I was probably going to go in the direction
3: of all software is bad. It's not just open source software, (laughs) but sunlight is probably the best disinfectant. And so (laughs) if you're the only one running something, or if you're running something proprietary, that has security issues too. And so using projects that have reached wider adoption, oftentimes you won't have to be the one that finds it. And if there is wider adoption, the fix is probably out there. But I've seen the community start to focus much more on security, like the software supply chain, I think, special interest group and the supply chain security groups, I think, are both meeting here and then walking the expo floor, see many companies dedicated to security. So I think it's certainly not a solved problem, but something that a lot of folks are thinking about.
1: I think this is an area where a collective approach is going to be more efficient than an individual approach. To your point, like if it's just one company's problem versus every company's problem, the hope is that someone will see it and we can work together to get it addressed faster or fixed faster. And I'm just was thinking as we we're talking about data centers and all of the precautions that physical data centers took to secure physical infrastructure. I remember going on all the tours where you'd have like literally seven various levels of security from the ram-proof fence to the main traps to the trackers and all the various ways that you're adding layers of hardened physical security that became industry standard where because we're still kind of on the bleeding edge of software development and creation we don't really have standards like that yet in terms of what practices are those are all starting to emerge now and they won't become standards unless we do them together and that becomes more of an industry-wide approach versus an individual company's approach so I am of the camp that a collective collaboration is better than an individual's problem. So even though I I, I kind of agree you can't really trust anything, the hope is that we can fix it faster as a community versus as an individual.
0: I love that concept of sunlight is the best disinfectant. Sunlight also can provide essential nutrition, so to speak, if you're thinking about food. It can provide the minerals that are needed, the soils and everything else. So there's a lot of things that can equate to that concept. I really like that. And the standards of practice, we're seeing a much larger increase in open source software projects from the CNCF. Aren't we, yeah, Have you been looking at those at all in terms of like how they're increasing? You know, there's Sigstore, for instance, your fellow former colleagues at Google have started
1: there. I haven't been counting them, but I feel like every time I look, there's a new project. <laughs> Great. Question? Yes. question is, how do you successfully transform to a multi-cloud business model? And part two, what role can open source projects play in a multi-cloud strategy?
2: How do you successfully migrate to multi-cloud? It's a great question. Everybody's trying to do it. And we'll come back to the complexity question. You've got to find a way to abstract the complexity for your consumers. And when I talk about the consumer here, I'm talking about the developer who's creating applications in the cloud. If we have to go and learn five different cloud technologies to create multi-cloud, that's just putting up another barrier. So the first step in that journey is to abstract that. So that when I ask for resources as a developer, I'm asking using one language across all of these potential infrastructures. And that's the first step for me. We have to make things more accessible. We have to take the human elements into account here. And then we have to invest as a Open source industry, and as each of us who are investing in these industries, in these tools to make it easier to consume. And that's going to be the driving force behind making it possible.
1: I mean, I think this whole conference, as well as I guess I used to go to a fair amount of OpenStack events as well, is all about not caring what the infrastructure looks like. Everything we're trying to build is to make it look and feel like you're working with the same stuff, even if you're not working with the same stuff. So the focus has been on that commonality through abstraction for base license virtualization. So I I see the continued focus of that and we're we're getting better at it. I went to a number of talks this week that I think one of them was titled, like, do we care who CPU this is or something like that, where we're working on tools to be able to remove the complexity of working with multiple things. And I think the hope for a lot of us is that open source provides some of that commonality, not just from enabling you to not think about what kind of hardware you're using, but because you can choose a couple of things that can remain consistent, whether or not you're talking about language or orchestration tools, um, there are things that you can choose to be common across multiple places. And I think at a certain point, you don't, want to remove all of the nuance that makes each individual platform because the thought is, well, you chose it for a specific reason, so you should leverage what that benefit is for you. But in areas where there isn't necessarily a lot of differentiation, you should pick the thing that you can use consistently in multiple places.
2: To pick something out, what you've just said, that we should be asking that question is, why do we care more often? I would just add that before
4: you go multi cloud, one of the best things, and this is builds on what Sophia said is choosing multi cloud tooling before you go multi cloud could make it much more easy to do that. For example, choosing HashiCorp Terraform versus using cloud formations in AWS so that you're ready for Google or Microsoft or some cloud that, you know, blows their socks off in two or three years.
3: We've very much uh, stayed neutral. So uh, Kubernetes, for example, when the uh, question is favorite distribution or which is the right one, so we don't have one, but ours is yours. And since you've made that decision already, is Amazon's EKS the right one? Sure, you can extend that here. Is uh, Google's Anthos? Sure, you can run that here on bare metal. Previously, it was sure, see if it works and have moved to a place where everything is validated and supported. And so we're not seeing as much of like, this is the first place, but it's mostly an extension and a place that's uh, already has interconnected to that cloud. So it makes sense to add a little bit of whatever you're already using.
0: I don't get it sometimes. I don't understand multi-cloud at all. I mean, the more I look at it, the more I don't get it. So Twitter used Google Cloud for cold storage and Hadoop. I don't know if they're using anything else and most companies won't really tell you what they're using it for anyway. But on the other hand, you know, there's all kinds of cloud services that you can use that might even be with the same company, right? Or there might be like, your employees may be using all kinds of different cloud services that doesn't speak to any kind of unified approach. So, you know, I'd be curious for your your thoughts on like, how do you even think about multi-cloud? How do you even define it? Because it seems to be ever-changing. It just doesn't, Seem to really make sense a lot for me. I guess Sophia, it's all about the people, right? You know, I don't. I mean, I don't know.
1: Well, I, I think in this context, about it's about the service. So even if you're saying multi-cloud or for considering SaaS as cloud, the more apps that you adopt, the more clouds you're using. So when you typically see multi-cloud, we're thinking about infrastructure as a service. But I think if you expand it to anything that is running not in your own data center, then it's just the proliferation of that is going to continue it's just what's the service model that you're buying so i'd say it's all about service definition and you're paying for the same kind of thing just it just isn't in your data center anymore <laughs> And so I don't know. I think we've been multi-cloud for a while if we were to consider apps as part of cloud. We're just thinking about it from an infrastructure perspective, which I know you're talking about the space power cooling people. There's always the issue of latency and why if I start spreading things apart or using multiple pieces of infrastructure, I have to think about how I integrate them, how I wire them, how I'm backing up data between them. And the more sophisticated that the service levels get and the app levels get, we don't have to care about that anymore. I mean, we do talk about latency. We talk about networking, but mostly we don't, care as much anymore because we don't have to. Someone else is dealing with that for us. So I think we've been there for a long time. I think there's there's too much focus on trying to understand these as different things when they're increasingly converging at the service level.
4: I think the semantics are confusing. It's a terrible term for where we're at today. We like to use the term serviceful, which is a term coined by Patrick Dubois, who started the DevOps movement. And if you stop thinking about what it is as the composition of it and that it's a service and where we're going is integrating these services, it becomes much easier to understand. It doesn't matter that it's Google, Microsoft, Amazon and where that data center lives as much as the service it provides and the characteristics of the service to create the cloud-native application, which is basically a combination of services.
0: I know we have another question.
4: Good morning. I was just thinking about open source strategy at Google as I was reading that. And I was curious, Sophia, in your analysis of the hyperscale cloud providers, do they have different differentiated perspectives on how to both consume open source internally and expose whatever support community tooling for open source externally? So are they competing Are they unified around a strategy to help clients? Like, what is the landscape of consumption of open source, both inside the hyperscale providers and then outside? And is it different, if that makes sense?
1: I mean, I think it's increasingly blended. I don't think we're the only provider that uses an incredible amount of open source as part of just the infrastructure landscape. I think we all do. How many folks in the room use Linux? (laughs) It's just part of the infrastructure now. So in terms of the consumption of open source, I'd say that's pretty ubiquitous. I think there are estimates that 80% of companies use open source knowingly, and 95 plus are using it whether they know it or not. So it's kind of an ubiquitous presence. It's just part of the infrastructure stack. In terms of how you choose to consume it and prioritize policy around it is up to the individual company. I mean, we actually have a lot of our documentation is public. If you want to see how we choose to design policy and compliance around the usage of open source internally... For both internal solutions as well as our product teams, they're all governed by the same policies, mostly to ensure that we're properly using licenses, given that open source is really designed to explicitly outline a collaboration model and a usage model around free software. And that usage is critical to things like software development productivity. And I don't think that's unique to any individual company. I think they're all approaching it like that. And so I think... When it comes to the engagement in the community and that strategy, I think that ends up being more about the people. If you follow who from what company is engaging in what project, if you look at that over time, all the company affiliations are going to change. But it's the same group of people that are working and are caring about these projects. So they can kind of stick to the communities that they care about, the projects they care about, irregardless of the companies that they work for. And I think that, again, is not unique to any individual company. It's, it's more about the people when we get to the engagement piece in terms of, yes, there will always be projects that we invest in as a company because we have a concerted interest in either in our internal infrastructure or in our product set. And I would say that's probably true for everyone on the stage right now. But it's at the end of the day, the individual engagement level is, is up to the person in terms of how much they want to volunteer their own time to be a part of something that's greater than their own organization.
3: Yeah, I echo. It's not hard to figure out if an open source project is technically open source or open source in spirit, by which I mean, is it something a company has that they're allowing you to see? Or is it a company that's bringing you in? The difference between being able to be inside the room or a fly on the wall and having a seat at the table. And so... If you go look at their repositories or attend community meetings or join in any of the uh, the chat that's set up, uh, how receptive to uh, issues, how welcoming of new members. And so if there's a project that's heavily developed inside a company, additional effort needs to be made to be responsive to the community or to let folks know, you can see what we're doing, but we're not really listening.
5: Question? I may have to come back to multi-cloud thing again. Uh, Alexa added that kind of comment, though. So as I'm just a mere engineer, I try to just to share a real pain points rather than just ask something. So by sharing this pain point, you may provide some kind of a helpful vision or feedback or something. So when you deploy, let's say just a Kubernetes, okay, on different cloud provider, and the inherently there is always conflicting problem domain there i've seen that it's naturally kind of a tied to certain snowflake that existing in each different cloud provider and you have to always deal with all different snowflake even for the same quantities of cloud platform deployment so i don't see it's going to be disappear or something but it's very um Kind of forever problem over there all the time. And when you use, let's say, some of enterprise, in our case, like using all cloud already, and we introduce Kubernetes, and our cloud services already kind tied to pre-existing cloud provider, right? And whenever we try to transform to Kubernetes we need to think about all other existing that are already tied to strongly connected and how we can deal with it, even even authentication, authorization, whatever part, or ingress, storage. In terms of we expanded the real multi, multi-cloud, always we kind of stuck. Oh, well, we don't have EBS over there. We don't have uh, ALB here. And then on other cloud, we need to think about from scratch everything all the time. This is kind of just a pain point and I would
2: like just get some of your feedback. I think that's a very interesting point and this comes back to that question we were talking about earlier and Jeremy mentioned the CNCF landscape. Ultimately, everybody is implementing Kubernetes and all of its dependencies differently because Kubernetes is actually only a small part of what it takes to run Kubernetes. We all know this. Just to get Kubernetes up and running, we need operating systems, we need databases, we need hundred other components. If we want to get to a point where we can have true portability of applications, which is what I'm hearing the core of your problem is here, we need to find a way to have a truly common interface. Now, Kubernetes, the API story we were talking about, the API is supposed to be standard. But everything underneath that, and we had the same problem in the OpenStack days. Yes, we had a standard API, but everything underneath that was different. So your approach to this, has you have to decide how you're going to run your Kubernetes. And this is why we're seeing more companies potentially running their own Kubernetes across these different platforms, so that they have more control of the stack. And that's one way to do it. Roll your own cube or work with a partner to roll a cube across all of these different platforms that can be consistent. And that's one way to approach that problem.
0: Anyone else like to add?
3: I'd argue that the differences between the cloud's platforms are their strengths. If you had one API to rule them all or a complete parity in services across everything, there would be no differentiation, which would be very convenient to develop against, but no one company could find a solution that was more tailored to you or have a service that was slightly better for you. It's easier to choose, but everything being the same is no choice at all.
0: That, I think, wraps it up. I want to thank all of you for all your questions. I want to thank the panelists. Thank you so much for joining us. And a big shout out to Mirantis. Let's give him a big round of applause. Thank you, everyone, for participating. Have a great last day at KubeCon and hope to see you soon.
1: The Mirantis mission is to help ship code faster. Mirantis offers enterprises unprecedented speed to ship code faster across public and private clouds by reducing cloud complexity with real choice, simplicity, and security. Mirantis and the Newstack are under common control.
0: Thanks for listening. Subscribe on Simplecast to listen to more episodes of the Newstack Makers. Then create and share your favorite audiogram using our Simplecast player. For more great stories, go to thenewstack.io.